In this episode, I am joined with my good friend Roman Pushkar, an authorized infinite banking practitioner. Roman and I discuss this scary thing called inflation and our personal experiences with it, as well as we dig into Nelson Nash's experience from the stories he used to share when he would teach his live Becoming Your Own Banker seminar. I hope you enjoy. So you're pissed off about inflation going up because you can't control any of it. It's driving you nuts. You're seeing it in the headlines. You're watching YouTube clips and you're seeing it on the Tic Tacs and the tweeters and the and the Instagrammies and all the things out there about how inflation is kicking us in the nuts, uh, proverbial nuts, that is. Uh, it would be pretty amazing if, in, if inflation was a physical person that could kick you in the nuts. But you're tired of it and you want to know what you can do about this and you know how can you protect yourself to some degree. Well, we're not going to have all the answers, but I'm here with my friend Roman today and we're going to talk a little bit about what has happened in the past. And we're going to talk about a real world example of our mentor, R. Nelson Nash, and one of the stories he used to relate and share to us about how inflation showed up over his years in, in on planet earth. Now, Nelson, he lived to uh, the ripe age of 88. He would say 88 revolutions around the sun. Uh, that's how he would describe it. And in that time frame, he experienced so much, you know, he was born in the thirties. He lived through the Second World War, uh, amongst many other you know wars that followed. In that whole time frame, he experienced all kinds of ups and downs, and ups and downs, and hills and valleys, and mountains of financial good and a lot of financial bad. And so he had a huge level and breadth of experience to speak about what was consistent in his life and how he saw inflation play a role as he lived his life. So I think Roman, you know, we, I'm glad I'm talking to you about this day because you also have a lot of unique perspective uh, to bring. And you and I've had a few conversations in the past about, you know, your journey coming to Canada and your, your past living over in Europe and how you saw things happen in the financial system there. Mm -hmm. And the, the concern maybe that, especially folks, you know, who are who immigrated to Canada find maybe their perspective on things like inflation is a little different because they've had a different experience than most living Canadians today. And I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Richard. You know, inflation was one of my biggest fears when I came to Canada, because when I experienced inflation back in my country, we just had the same inflation, the same thing with just more zeros attached to it. Right. It's pretty much, uh, it works the same way. So the a currency is depreciating in its value, losing its purchasing power every day or every year. And uh, the citizens just have to deal with it. They have to embrace it, have to accept it because all the, like when you wake up and then all the goods and services uh, went up in, in, in price, you just need to do something with it. And then, so people are actually looking to hedge the, the capital against it, right? Somehow you need to find a way to either overpace inflation with uh, something that is growing better than inflation or do something else, right? In the country where I lived, you know, one of the hedges was uh, US dollar, right? So US dollar, we, we would just buy your US currency and then keep it in cash or keep it in a bank account. This was our hedge, but guess what? US dollar also has its own inflation, right? US inflation. and. Uh, there's no real protection from inflation. We're just going from one currency to another currency, from one zone to another another inflation zone. So, and uh, yeah, we, we just wanted to talk today about inflation and how the policyholders, how the Canadians can make sure that we protect our capital from inflation. 
Yeah. And the, the idea is to try to give yourself every chance or opportunity to have a hedge. And there are multiple ways that you might be able to do that. And for some people watching, you've probably already taken some of those steps, you know, and, and, and good for you on that. You know, Roman and I, you, we had another video that we did uh, a little while back and we talked a little bit about, you know, silver and gold to a degree yeah. and that being a, a bit of a hedge. And a lot of people believe that that's the case, but again, the purpose of doing that is, isn't so much a matter of uh, you know, as an example, I go and get silver coins and then I have a stack of those, you know, in a little sleeve of silver coins and I'm sitting on them. They're just sitting there and they're doing nothing. They're just sitting in a safe. Essentially, the idea is, OK, at some point in time, if we if we really start to see, a, you know, a really big economic type collapse scenario, whatever that is and in your geographic area. So, so us in Canada and maybe it'll happen. It'll start happening in different places. And and so you have a little bit of a something to, that's physical that. If you needed goods and services, you are more likely to be able to now negotiate or or have a, a conversation with a vendor, a supplier, a business owner about, hey, I, I need your service. I know that you don't want to take my pink Canadian money today because for whatever reason it's you know it's been manipulated too much and it's no longer worth its value. So this you're not going to accept this hundred dollar or fifty dollar bill, but will you accept one of these? silver coins in, in exchange instead. And then there's that physical, tangible nature. And so now you're in kind of this, you're almost like a, back to a barter system. Ultimately, everything we do is a barter yeah. system. We're just using the currency denomination to add speed to that barter mm -hmm. aspect. And, and we don't need to barter with though, you know, like when I ordered something on Amazon today, I didn't have to barter with Jeff Bezos to get the delivery to my door. I didn't have to barter the delivery guy to just show up magically and leave it on my front doorstep. So we, we've we've been able to utilize the currency method and, and and computer technology to add you know lightning speed onto trans transaction activity, where I can now buy from anyone in the world without having to really physically speak to someone or go and negotiate with that individual. But ultimately, what we're doing is the same thing. It's just it's just happening on this mass scale now. And so when the when the value of the currency comes down, and or it's a combination of you know value of currency comes down or price of goods go up, it, it, they're really the same thing that's taking place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And where you where you see that happen is often in in specific areas. So like you know people would talk about certain staples that you put in your fridge. You know you buy groceries. Okay, well the price of fruit went up or the price of milk went up and and there could be a higher degree of price change like let's say i want to buy a gallon of milk you know yesterday and it's four bucks and today i want to go do it it's seven dollars well that's a pretty dramatic increase in that one one spot i might not see the same increase on let's say a can of peas okay yeah. so that so there's a variable there and that has to do with supply chain dynamics and supply and demand now i'll give you an, i'll give you a direct example of this so where I live in Chilliwack, I, I love it here. It's fantastic. Chilliwack, BC is a, a beautiful, wonderful place. And uh, one thing I really love about it is <clears throat> something that's like reminds me of growing up. So growing up in Alberta, in a small town in the Alberta area, we used to literally just drive down the road to a neighbor's house and we used to get our milk there. Mm -hmm. We would just go get a jar of milk. I remember like I we would separate the cream off and that's how we got our milk. We didn't go to the store to get it when I was, when I was a, a young boy. And it was fantastic up until the point where it didn't, it just wasn't sensible to do that anymore because sometimes it was a, the timing didn't work out. Now today in Chilliwack, I can actually go and do that in, in local places. There's a, there's a place it's about 
maybe six, seven minutes down the road, they actually have a vending machine where I can go and I can bring my own jug and I can basically get milk right out of the jug and I can put like loonies into it. So that's kind of cool. Nice. But also one of the things that we do is we buy a lot of local produce and, and things like eggs. Mm-hmm. So I can walk down the road. I can take my dog and go for a walk. And it's about a five minute walk, six minutes. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can literally drop money in a little box, an honesty box, you know, yeah. that's a $7 and I can get a dozen eggs and I can walk home with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's pretty cool because I'm, I'm happy that I don't have to pay uh, the GST <laughs> government slavery tax. Um, and, and some other things. And I get to give my money directly to the farmer who made those eggs and, and did all that stuff. I'm really happy about that. Now, what's interesting, though, is about, say, six months ago, roughly, maybe maybe seven months ago, those same dozen of eggs were about four bucks or four fifty. So the increase on 12 eggs has gone up pretty substantially. Now, I know the reason for that or part of the reason for that is because the the farmer, that local farmer, they've had a dramatic increase in chicken feed. Yep. So the the cost to feed the chickens is now pushing the price up on the consumer because they they can't keep their chickens, they can't feed them unless they do that. They have to. So again, it goes back to the situation of the consumer. The consumer pays for everything. So we are always, as a consumer, for everything we do in life, we're paying the top level price that has to happen that's absorbing all the supply chain problems and costs and and all the manipulation of money supply that that governments and central banks are doing and shenanigans that are happening on a global basis, we are paying that price. So goods are getting exported from another country, whether it's you know China or wherever, and it comes to to our shores, well, you got to pay for that. And then there's import fees and duties on the, that stuff that comes into the country. That's yep. a tax. That tax gets added to the price. Then it goes to the wholesaler. The wholesaler has to send it to the retailer. There's a, They have to get a profit. That, that gets added in. And then mm-hmm. it's like it just levels up and levels up and levels up. And then we pay the price. And then on top of that price that the business needs so that they can try to earn a profit or keep their employees employed, mm-hmm. then we have to pay tax on top of yeah. that price. So the, these combination of factors really amplify the inflation problem because we see it at the consumer level, at the daily goods that we buy. We're seeing the valuation of the dollar, or in other words, what our dollar can purchase is going down. I'm going to give you one more example. Sorry, I'm on a soapbox a little bit here, Roman. And now, I don't know when you were growing up if you had vending machines that you could go buy mm-hmm. like yes. like soda or pop or like Coke and that sort of thing. Yep. Now, when you would used to go to a vending machine you could go put in a certain amount of money and you could get a Coke. And I remember it being, you know, I could, there was places I could go, like I could go to the hockey rink and get it for like 50 cents. It wasn't Coke. It was like RC Cola. It was a, it was a knockoff. Maybe it was 75 cents for a Coke. And then it went up to a dollar and now, and it was there for a really long time. As far as I remember, in fact, I used to, at, at my local school, I used to be the guy that filled the vending machine and I had mm-hmm. to take, you know, collect the coins and, and all that sort of thing. And then I remember as I age, okay, now it's a dollar twenty-five. Then it's a dollar fifty. Now it's two bucks. Now you want to go and buy one, and you go to the airport and buy one. It's like three dollars for the pretty much the equivalent Coke. It's not in a can anymore. It's in a bottle. Maybe there's a little bit more volume of, but you're paying like three dollars for that. Sometimes more. So that's a pretty dramatic difference in a let's call it a thirty-year time frame. And I'm curious, what was your experience? growing up where you were when you would do something similar like i said yeah so we had inflation on a different scale and uh, normally the inflation was not lower than 10 percent in the countries where i lived it was uh, really 
you know, hard to keep up with inflation sometimes, especially I've seen inflation at, you know, 100%, even 200%, even more, right? So it's really hard to, to um, you know, describe how we would feel about that, but uh, the prices would just double in, in a month period or in, in, in several month period, and then they will double again, and then they will double again in, in a year or two. So the inflation really was a big factor when I lived, you know, I remember the prices when we lived in still in in ussr right in ussr times when we we could buy like uh some groceries let's say like a big sausage for i guess 84 cents and then after this ussr collapsed after the you know there was russia ukraine the prices just went up like crazy like uh we had like so big inflation because of bad economy bad you know management because of bad government and uh everything just quadrupled in, in just overnight in, in the price. Just to give you an idea of what the inflation looks like when we look back, I'm gonna be talking about Canada, not about Russia or Ukraine. So where I live, I live in Steinbeck, uh, Manitoba. So, and we have something called a, a Mennonite Heritage Museum here in Steinbeck, which is a museum of, you know, how the first settlers came to Steinbeck from Germany, how they started, you know, living. And there's like a small shop with uh, still prices on, on the wall for how much you can buy food for, right? Like uh, you can buy like a, a cup of tea for like 24 cents, right? So when I go back to that store, it always reminds me of inflation, of how the inflation works throughout the years. You may not notice inflation in the, what it was in, in the last month or year. It may not be that significant. But when you look back for centuries, you will see that inflation created a huge problem where the money devaluated in like many, many, many times. And uh, for example, when we came to Canada for the first time in 2009, I remember that I could go to a big store and then just uh, for $100, I could fill the whole cart, full cart of groceries. Almost overfilling it probably. Yeah, overfilling it. Out of the cart. Yeah, exactly. The groceries will, will fall off the cart for 400 bucks. Now I can only, you know, cover the bottom for hundred bucks, right? So this tells me much more about inflation than anything else. I can feel it. I can feel that I can't really buy as much as I did uh, 13 years ago. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the real world example. And I would imagine people, you know, they're experiencing that in, in many ways. And it's, it's interesting when you start to think about like the individual products or you want to really start to kind of grasp how inflation is showing up in your life specifically. Yeah. Think about specific things. I think the grocery store is a really good spot because that's it's a fundamental need. We need food on our table. We have to feed our family. And so this is an area where, the, where we really get squeezed a lot. And there's many reasons that cause fluctuation in, in food prices. A lot of it, a lot of it has to do with the supply and demand. And the supply chain has been because of the whole COVID scenario supply chain has been really, really, you know, hit hard in many areas. You know, we saw it in a huge spikes in like lumber prices and construction materials for the same reason. And another thing that has, has impacted that, of course, in the supply chain is fuel. So you're noticing it at when you go to the pump to put, you know, put petrol and gas mm -hmm. into your, into your tank of your vehicle. But think about now the trucker or the truck driver that's, that's delivering those goods and they have to fuel up. Well, whether they are a private 
truck driver or they work for a large company. That's a, you know, that's that's what they do as a large organization. So they have a huge amplified cost, which means yeah. they must charge more for their delivery services. There is no other option or they're going to go out of business. And then right, all right. those employees are going to be unemployed. Like it's a huge ripple effect. Exactly. So, and, and all the businesses need to raise prices now because everything is tied on delivery, tied on transportation. Transportation is a blood of economy. When the gas prices go up, guess what? Everything will go up eventually. Not just, not just uh, groceries. It, I mean, all the prices and all the services of building, uh, you know, building materials and uh, everything, literally everything will go up. You know, I've never seen someone uh, riding a pedal bike, hauling a giant trailer behind them filled with all the stuff that shows up at a Canadian Tire or a Home Depot. You know, that, that's not how that stuff's getting to the store. Yep. <laughs> it's getting there on a truck. Okay, the fuel prices are going, okay, well, what is that? Okay, well, there's there's obviously pricing and the actual cost of mm -hmm. oil, what's a barrel of oil, those kind of things. But then it's also, where's that oil coming from? And then it, And then further to that, it's what is the tax on getting it in there? And then what is the surcharges and the fuel taxes and all those kind of things? And then, you know, now we also have, and again, not to make, I'm just thinking about what are the things that are driving things up? And so then there's also now a carbon tax that's added and that's going to be escalating over the next number of years, uh, you know, based on the current plans of the government in Canada. And so it's a tax on a tax on a tax, but it adds a little, it adds another layer. And that's a layer that's chipping away at your money. And it's making you have to work harder or trying to do whatever you can to try and increase your income and your revenues so you can keep pace. Now, thinking about, you know, uh, income and revenues, when, you know, talk, we're going to talk a little about Nelson and what are the things that Nelson experienced when over his, you know, history on 88 years on the earth. And when he was talking about when he first started working and he was married as a very young man, he was in his, you know, uh, late twenties and he was working, uh, at the, uh, I'm trying to remember. It was like a, a National Guard uh, kind of a situation. He was making about $10,000 a year. And he said that at that time, that was better than the average bear. In other words, he was making a very good income at that point. And this is back in like 1959, $10,000 is US a, a year. And now today, the average person or middle class, average Canadian, maybe upper middle class, they're earning you know, somewhere around eighty dollars to $100,000 a year you know, in, in general. Now, because of the cost and the, the pricing of everything, a lot of households, they're also now need to be, they require to be a dual income household yep. in order to have enough revenue coming in that they can support all the stuff that's going on. So, so again, that's a big change. Now the incomes have gone up. If we were to look at, you know, Nelson in 1959 at 10 grand, and let's just, just, you know, take the Canada U S dollar out of the situation and we shoot forward today where let's just say the average income is about a hundred thousand and I'm, I'm, I don't know those numbers. I'm just using it as a barometer here. Then we're 10 times greater on the income. So incomes have gone up, but how is that related to all the other formats where we're paying? So if you think about the cost of a vehicle, the cost of the fuel, the cost of the insurance, the cost of the housing, the cost of the this, the cost of that. Like it used to be you could buy a vehicle for like $2,000 and that mm -hmm. would be the, the brand new vehicle. And yeah, yeah, that was a large portion of the $10,000 of income but you would have it paid for in like two or three years. And now, but that vehicle wouldn't last as long because they didn't have the quality of materials and knowledge and construction and, and engineering that we have today. But, you know, everything has a relevance point. And so, yes, incomes have gone up from at least Nelson's story of 1959, 
but have they gone up to keep pace with the inflation and and the rapid inflation that we're seeing, which my belief is, and you know, I did just did a video recently uh, with our friend Henry on this, talking about the Bank of Canada and some of the manipulation of interest rates and money supply and that sort of stuff. There's underlying factors that have happened, and all those factors are already history. In other words, they've already taken place. They took place one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years ago in a combination of events that's led up to the problem that we're now dealing with. So these yeah. are these are things that happen that have an unintended consequence. We, as a Canadian citizenship, as a population, we're dealing with the unintended consequence presently. Yeah. Exactly. And whatever is going to be done, so this is really important. I want people to think about this. Whatever is going to be done by the top level people. So mm-hmm. we'll just we'll just put a blanket statement on. We'll say we'll say government, and maybe it's Bank of Canada, maybe it's this. There's a this the top layer of who's going to make decisions about this problem. That solution, quote unquote, solution that they create, you know, it's also going to have an unintended consequence. So just keep that in mind because there's this thing called the business cycle that Austrian economists talk about. You can learn a lot about that by, you know, a great book to get is uh, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. And if you understand a little bit about the Austrian mindset of economics and the business cycle, the boom bust cycle that is created has a huge amount to do with the manipulation of interest rates and the fractional reserve system and the manipulation of the money supply. And we're seeing that in massive quantities. And especially because of the aftermath of COVID, the amount of money that has been manufactured or or, or added into effectively circulation by the, the federal government and, and et cetera, is we, we don't know how that problem is really going to show up. I mean, we can we can make assumptions, we can use some logic to think it through. But we're not even seeing the real impact of that problem now. We're starting to see a portion of it, but I don't think we're going to see the real impact for for a while yet. I don't know, Roman. I, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely, Richard. Uh, I totally agree with uh, what you said. And uh, also, I wanted to mention that inflation is not a huge problem if it is going both ways. On the, on the one end, there's an income coming to the family, and then there's expenses. So money flowing in money flowing out. The biggest problem with inflation is that it only affects the expenses side most of times, right? So because think about it, when when the price of goods and expenses and especially gas and, you know, groceries and the bills, um, everything goes up, then it affects your cash flow. Because if you have uh, some, some sort of discretionary income, let's say your income is uh, 50K, and then your expenses are, let's say, 44K, right? Including taxes, including mortgage and groceries and everything. And your discretionary income is about 6K, which is $500 per, per month, right? So when inflation hits, what happens is that the expenses go up. Expenses go up and then it shrinks your ability to save, shrinks your ability to grow your, your capital because the income doesn't go up automatically in value right so you don't really automatically get a raise at work when when the prices go up do you you probably don't right so normally citizens get you know income raise from time to time but does it keep up with inflation richard what do, what do you think i agree it's squeezing the expenses up and and if the income isn't to keep pace if inflation went up yesterday all of a sudden increase the prices on every item that you sell out of your business or 
or whatever you do, whether you're a consultant, you have, maybe you, you have a big business where you do, you have hydrovac trucks, like whatever yeah. it is you do, you can't just send out a memo and an email to all of your clients that are paying you per hour on contracts that you've signed and, and say, oh, by the way, hey, because fuel went up and inflation went up and this and that, hey, we're going to increase our price by 20% for everybody. Sorry, like it doesn't work like that because you're going to irritate your customers and you'll lose customers. No more customers means your business shuts down and all the employees don't have a job to go to anymore. And so like the amount of people that you're responsible for, especially at a business owner level that are impacted by that decision and the pressure, the pressure it puts on the shoulders often of a, a business owner is extremely high. And I think yeah. a lot of people who aren't in business don't really recognize that that's what happens. Um, but even again, if you're just employed with somebody, so recognize that the business owner, whoever it is that you, you're working for, whatever that company is, they can't just make a command statement that says, hey, because of inflation, we're going to go ahead and give everyone a dollar an hour raise right now yeah. because they, they have they have contracts that they've negotiated and all these things. Like They don't have the new revenue coming in to support that decision and all of their expenses are going up too. So that would put them in a very very tricky position to, to survive as a business, yeah. unless, unless they were extremely well capitalized. Yeah. And so that means they have cash on hand money that's available to access. You know, uh, I think back and I don't know the stats on this today, a number of years back at one point, uh, Apple as a company was like the most capitalized business on the planet. They were just sitting on billions of dollars of money that you know, they could that they could put to work. Yeah. yeah. And, and so they need that sort of capital to make massive major decisions. They wanted yeah. to go do an R and D on a major project or whatever it is. They need to fork in a ton of capital and they might have to fork in, you know, let's say they want to create the next, you know, the next best greatest phone or whatever it's going to be. And they're going to do something radically different because they're kind of known for doing things radically yeah. different. And that because they're going to make a game changing move, they got to invest a huge amount of capital it might all fall apart. And so there's a possibility of a huge amount of loss. So they have to be well capitalized if it doesn't go well. And they can't make these big, massive billion dollar investment decisions on a, on a long-term project that might take say three or four years of R&D and development, you know, and planning and marketing and rollout and everything to be able to make this release of a, a new product, yeah. unless they can make sure that they can also keep all their employees employed and keep the lights on and that right. kind of stuff. So recognize that the need of capital is important for everyone, not just at the you and me level, at the, at the business level, federal government coffers level, except they don't really have any capital because the only re revenue source they have is us. I just recently read how they deal with the need to raise prices in the stores, for example, retail business in Russia. The inflation is higher than in Canada. So they need to raise prices from time to time just to keep up with inflation, with expenses, with uh, gas prices and everything. So what they do, they actually, I've never seen this in Canada, but in Russia, what they do, they, it's very interesting. They actually reduce the packs, they reduce the volume of the goods. So instead mm -hmm. of selling 10 eggs, they will sell nine eggs at the same price. Guess what? People don't really pay attention to that. They don't really think about it as inflation. Yeah, I mean, it's a totally different, packaging now, but they don't think about it that inflation cost it. Or instead of selling one kilogram of, let's say, sugar, they sell 900 grams now. Guess what? That's inflation. That's uh, basically taken out 10% of the value of the currency, right? 
And uh, this this happened lots in the last, I would say, five to ten years. I've, I've, I haven't seen it in Canada. Maybe it exists. But uh, what I noticed, though, Richard, when you go to a dollar store, it is far more easier to to make a purchase of something that is costing one dollar or one and a half dollars. But then when you make a calculation of, of, of the smaller packaging, you make a calculation that actually you're buying things for higher price than in, in a normal store. And, and also, this is a great example of inflation where inflation drives the prices up, but instead of raising the prices in the store, they actually come up with different ideas on how to make different packaging, different you know volume, whatever it may be. Yeah, you're 100% accurate. And I like your analogy of the dollar store because a dollar store used to be a dollar store. Yeah. And now a lot of things that you'll go and buy are Five. $2, $3, $5, right? $5 or, or whatever. Yeah. And and I, 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 seem, I seem to think that even though I, I feel like there was even a dollar store that changed its name. It, it used to be like the dollar store. Now it's the $2 store. Like I, I might be <laughs> okay. wrong on that, but I, my, I seem to remember seeing like a, like a logo of one of that. Wait a second. That's different. That's not what it used to be. Um, but another example of that is like you say, changing the packaging. So yeah. a lot of cardboard. So as an example, like cereal boxes and, and, and mm -hmm. the kind of things now. So now a lot of that is it's, it's thinner. It's, it's not as durable. Like that, like the packaging has changed. Yeah. And then, and then additionally, like an area where I, I notice it more than anything else. And I've, and I've seen it for, for a number of years. And I'd be curious to see what other, what others uh, were recognized this in, but bags of chips. All right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you go get a bag of chips now and, and, you know, the, the kind of the, the standard small one or whatever you used to get with well, it, it feels like there's a lot more air in there. You know, it's, it's, yeah. It's definitely not the same. Like you go and open it up and there's like seven chips where it used to be like, okay, well, there's like, okay, there used to be like 50 chips in here or whatever. Like there's a huge difference in how much is inside the package. The package looks the same on the outside because it's filled with air, but the quantity that you actually receive is different. And that's a another huge area. You know, I think a lot of people would, you know, we would often maybe, uh, I, I think in my past, I would have thought, oh, geez, you know, boy, that big company is trying to squeeze more profits out of us, you know, because they, they're putting less in there. So they must be making more money. And like, I'm really upset with them because I used to get this many chips and now I don't. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, I know like, you know, 20 years ago, probably even 15 years ago, I would have really felt that way. My mindset has shifted and changed based on, you know, a lot of what, what I've learned from Nelson and understanding more about how the consumer is the one that is always, on the hook, the consumer pays for everything. Right. And you think about all the hoops that uh, a business has to jump through and the challenges that are presented to them in these areas like, you know, delivery, supply chain, increasing cost of fuel, import taxes on goods, like all these roll up of things that happen yeah. that, that all has to be front loaded to the end user who's buying the right. product. And so that's something that Nelson talked a lot about and, you know, maybe in a little bit more roundabout way. But let's bring up this image that I was talking about. So this, what we're going to look at, this is a chart that Nelson used to have in his slide deck. And he was talking about one of his very first policy, this example, this is Nelson's uh, state farm policy. And this policy started in 1959. Okay. Nelson was 28 years young when he got this policy and the original starting death benefit on this policy. And, and I'm, I do my best to recall here. I believe it was a $20,000 death benefit. So don't quote me on that, but I believe that's what it was if my memories serve me correct. So his annual premium was 388.40 a year. Now, when Nelson started this policy, he was making about $10,000 a year and and he again, he indicated that that was 
a really good income at that time. He was slightly above maybe, you know, uh, the average kind of American at that stage. So 388 a year, that represents a large percentage of his total annual income. Like it's a good, it's a good amount. And he got that policy for death benefit. And that whole purpose was, you know, to protect the family. He was married and that sort of thing. And those are really critical items to him. He really believed that that mattered a great deal. Mm -hmm. And he always did throughout his whole lifespan. And when he got this policy, it's actually his brother that sold him this policy. He used to be work, he used to work at State Farm and didn't tell him anything that Nelson, you know, ended up putting in his book, Become Your Own Banker and all the things that we talk about on all our content. But he ended up getting this policy. And the thought was at some point in time, the policy would pay for itself and he wouldn't have to put any more premium in. So he used the dividends that he received from the profits of the life company that he co-owned to reduce the annual premium for the first 15 years. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in other words, he stunted the growth potential of the policy dramatically. Yeah. And he didn't know any better. Yeah. He didn't know any better because he just wasn't taught. It wasn't really conveyed to him that he could do more with the policy. Nelson also talks about, especially in his second book, uh, building your warehouse of wealth. He talks about a couple of deals that he did through, through this policy with policy loans. One of his most profitable real estate deals he ever did came from a $3,000 policy loan he took from this policy where he got a he got a, a piece of land, timberland at a discounted price at about 25 cents on the dollar. So it uh, ended up being a smoking deal for him. And over his lifespan, he was able to generate a great amount of revenue and and even cash flow off of selling that land. He sold it. He financed a new buyer for 10 years at 15% interest. So he made a great amount of money on that deal. And what I really want people to understand is we have this red bar here with a premium. So 38840, if you just scan the bottom there, again, you know, this was started in 1959. We're looking at a much later period of time. That that red bar is perfectly flat and level over the entire time frame. The premium never went up. It was contractually locked in. But this is what's interesting. I, I just wanted Ronan. to add that this pre, uh, the the chart that we are looking at is actually not uh, from the beginning from the policy. It's a thirty first year of the policy, and this is a stunted policy because yeah. he wasn't applying the dividends to paid up insurance like he right. would teach people to do because he didn't know any better at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, what's interesting here with this this example is there's a yellow line here, and that yellow line represents. GCV, which stands for guaranteed cash value increase. So by age 100, the cash value must grow to equal the total death benefit. Now, if his his original contract was 20,000, so if the original death benefit was 20,000, by age 100, at the time of this policy being issued, it was age 100. Now in the United States, it's age 121. The cash value had to grow to equal that that original death benefit number of 20,000. Now, as Nelson used that dividend to, he changed it and he had that dividend go by paid up insurance, the policy started to grow and accumulate more and more and more. He didn't have a flexible premium, like a lot of people talking about paid up additions, premiums and riders and these sorts of things nowadays. He didn't have that in 1959 with this policy. All he had, all he was able to do was pay the base premium of 3840. He couldn't make it any quote unquote better than that. Yeah. And What's interesting, and Nelson would say, you know, he, he, so he took checks out starting in 2006, all the way up to, I believe, 2010. So he took four checks out. He changed the dividend option and he had the insurance company send him a check. So he, again, stunted the growth of the policy by doing this. This is really important to understand. He chose voluntarily because he wanted to be able to, to take a picture of a physical check that he would say, look, stop taking my dividend and buying paid up insurance send me the dividend and send it in the mail. Now, when he received that dividend, he took he took checks of them 
And that that dividend didn't go back into the policy to make it bigger. So again, he, he stunted growth a second time in the policy. Here's the key thing. The guaranteed cash value increase, what we're looking here, this number is each and every year. So in 1990, he had whatever, a, a chunk of guaranteed increase, which was greater than the red line, his premium. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then the next year, he paid a premium and the guaranteed cash value increase was again stacked on top. It's greater. And so every time that there was an increase, every year that we're looking at, whatever the increase is, is being stacked on top of last year's increase. Okay. Mm -hmm. So as an example, in 1990, he paid 388.40 a year. And if we look at the, the yellow bar and the blue bar combined, we add those together, that gives us the green bar, the total. Well, that looks like, let's just ballpark it at $2,500. So the total increase in his in his policy was he put in 388.40 and he got 2,500 in cash accumulation. So he got mm -hmm. his 388 back plus a, a lot more than that, basically. All right. Yep. Now, in as we go through this, you see each and every year, just imagine the green bar here is, is basically stacking on top of the one before it. What's really cool to see, because you know, there's no even like when you see like 1998 to 2000 here, it shows it's going down, but it's not going down. That the policy didn't retreat or go down in value. All that happened is the amount of dividend he got that year was slightly lower. So, but this this green bar is actually added on top of the previous green bar. Okay, yeah. why are we bringing this up? Our conversation today is about inflation and the impact of inflation affecting Canadians, a lot of people in the globe. Right now, it's, it's a real problem. Nelson would tell a story about what things used to cost back in 1959 when he would buy things at the commissary, you know, at the army base where he was located and his income being 10,000 a year. He would talk about the price of cars and all of these things and the price of chicken, the price of bananas. And then he would reference it to today. And he would say, he would, he would help people understand that actually from when he started to, to now, the price of chicken had gone down. The price of bananas had gone down. Mm -hmm. The price of cars had gone up, but what's changed was the was what you can get in a car, what type of bells and whistles and things and how long that, how many miles that car would last. You know, when you were buying cars in 1959, that you might not get 10, you might not get uh, 10,000 miles out of them, you know, maybe yeah. 30,000 miles. Now you can run a, a vehicle 300,000 miles. So there's a huge difference in the function of that item. So in that environment, he would say you're actually getting more of what you pay for. Even though the the price of a car has gone up, what you get for it has kept pace with that time, timing and analogy, basically. And then he would talk about a couple of core areas where inflation has skyrocketed or the value, quote unquote, value of the dollar skyrocketed. It was, it was in, in health. So like medical costs and expenses. And a lot of that has to do with, uh, you know, we won't get into it, but like the, the insurance problems and in, in, in mostly it was focused on the United States. But then he would also talk about education. So like university, college education. And uh, there was one other area he mentioned. I don't remember what it is offhand, but there were three primary areas where, where, the, where the cost of things were so dramatically higher and different than the regular basket of goods that we purchase. Here's one of the key things I want people watching this to, to see. That premium of 388.40 that Nelson did, and he, he locked it in. It never went up. He locked it in in 1959. Well, if we think about the value of the dollar, the U.S. dollar in this case, and and the Canadian dollar would be, you know, not not dramatically different. I don't think at that stage of the game, the the value of the dollar at that point, Nelson locked in the value of that dollar because he locked in the three eighty eight premium. So he he locked in the strongest dollar available to him, and he was paying 
that premium now in weaker dollars through the rest of his lifespan. So yeah. as his income went up, he would make the same injection of 38840, but he was, you know, even though the value of the dollar was going down, the premium didn't change, but the increase in the policy was keeping perfect pace with inflation over his lifespan. And, you know, he said that, you know, the 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 dividend alone that he received, you know, in like 2006, you know, 2007 and stuff, it was it was more than 10 times the premium that he was put in that same year. And so just take a moment and think about that. Put yourself down the road into the future. Recognize that you could lock in the strongest dollar today and you could be making a, a, a premium deposit into a contract that you own and control that by the virtue of its design and by historical you know, nature, we can use Nelson's history, 88 years on planet earth as a reference point yeah. and all the cycles and booms and busts that he experienced over his lifespan. Every time that the markets crashed for whatever reason, his insurance value still went up. And so the reference point of how that policy, that one that was, I wouldn't say poor to design, it was designed to do what it could do at the time, but he, he stunted the growth. So he, yeah. in the first 15 years, and then he stunted it again later in the policy, just to prove a point. Cause that's the yeah. kind of guy he was. And when Nelson passed away and I I'm again, I'm doing this from memory. I believe the final death benefit that paid out in that policy was somewhere around 135 and $140,000. It started as a $20,000 death benefit. Well, 20 times five is a hundred, you know, so it was like, it was like six times, seven times greater than the original death benefit. And at the point in time where Nelson passed, the cash value would have been much closer to that death benefit line because the cash had to grow to equal the death benefit. Death benefit. So it kept pace with all the problematic issues of inflation over Nelson's lifespan. Yep. Now, does that mean we can say with absolute certainty that's going to happen for every policy owner on planet Earth? The answer is yeah. no, but we can we can utilize a little bit of logic, some history and some personal experience of people that have come before us. And I haven't been around for 88 years. So you, you know, my experience, I don't have the, the lifespan behind me to show that, mm -hmm. but I, I have Nelson's lifespan and I can I can leverage what he instilled in us as knowledge, but also these other impacts of things like you know, this one policy and the other policies that he would tell us about. Yeah, exactly. So, and then we can learn from Nelson and see how we can do the same. And maybe we have like, I have a, a little bit lower uh, lifespan left uh, till I turn 100 years old. But still, if I do this, then I can capitalize my policy so that it over grows faster than inflation. One thing I wanted to add, Richard, is that when I look at the chart, I'm thinking, was it easier for Nelson to pay 388 per month in 1990 or later than it was in 1959? What do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was 388 per year. And yes, absolutely, it was easier for him to pay it in 1990 than it was at the beginning because his income had gone up dramatically. Yeah. And because it, the cost of dollar was also lower back then, right? And 30, 31 years later, after the policy got started, it was much easier for him to keep paying this premium. So what I'm trying to say is sometimes I get this, uh, this question asked, Hey Roman, how soon can I stop making premium payments? If it is easier every year for you to make this premium payment, why would you ever stop? For me, the objective is to pay for as long as I possibly can. And I know for sure that uh, the premiums will be much more affordable to me every single year as I age and as my income 
potentially goes up. Even if I'm retired, when I go to passive income time, uh, I still will have some something coming in as maybe, you know, government security, something else, maybe I will still have some income coming in. I will want to pay at least the minimum on my policies or maybe even the maximum if, if I can, just to keep that momentum going up because the premium for me is easier to make than, than it was initially. Perfect thing that you said there, Roman, because again, let's just take the chart we looked at in Nelson's example and, and yeah. walk that one step further. So if we're at a stage now where you're in passive income mode, you know, maybe you're getting CPP and OAS and mm -hmm. you've got, you're taking, you're pulling money down out of what a pension, or maybe you have registered accounts, passive income from real estate rentals, whatever it is that you have going on in your, in your bag of income goodies. Okay. Yeah. Commit some of that capital towards continuing to fund at minimum, the base premium of policies mm -hmm. that you set up. If you embrace this concept and you you're following the teaching and things that we're, we're doing, and you're following what Nelson walks you through in his book, you will have a very efficient machine working for you where every time you inject that base premium, just like in Nelson's example, now you're getting three, four, six, seven, ten times the accumulation yep. in account value and in, in cash value in the policy, which is happening because the insurance company is on a contractual obligation to grow the cash value weekly death benefit. So yep. as you age, quite literally, the policy gets more efficient. It's engineered to get more efficient mm -hmm. from a perspective of cash accumulating to chase the death benefit. There, there, there's no other option. It, they, there's nothing else that can be done. It must happen because it's a contractual requirement of the insurance company. And so I, I personally am going to want to pay those premiums. Now, I think when people ask that question and it's okay, it's, it's an okay question to ask. That's saying that you're in the discovery process. You're still just learning. There's nothing wrong with that question. No, no question. There's nothing wrong with any question, but recognize how we're thinking. I think what people just want to know because they're so accustomed to getting beat up by Mm -hmm. different costs and expenses that they want to know they have the option, the ability to, or the choice yeah. that they might be able to stop making the premium payment. And so, you know, for, for far and wide in most situations, that will be the case. It just depends on size of your program when you get started and, you know, a number of factors, but the key thing is instead of asking the question, so just change your mindset. Instead of asking the question, when can I stop paying? Start asking the question, how much can I put into it? The older I get, how much can I put in? Mm -hmm. And if you just adjust that question in your head, it doesn't mean that you might you you won't have the choice to stop. What it means is that your focus and your energy and your attention is going towards accumulation, towards increasing your value proposition and what you do from now to the day that you might want to stop. Because you're really, when you get there, if you have that question in mind, you're not going to want to stop. And the amount of legacy potential and the amount of accumulated cash values and things that happen will be far greater than someone who has the mindset of when can I stop? If all you're thinking about is when you can stop, you're missing a huge component of the thinking process to what's going to make you ultimately successful with this journey. And Nelson says it on page 85, point number two in the book, if you knew you were going to get back every single dollar you put into a system, potentially tax-free, would you ever object to putting any more money into it? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously the answer is no. But if you really fundamentally understand that one point in Nelson's book, your brain starts to just like, your brain's a powerful tool. It's just going to start shifting and it's going to start taking you down the path that's going to provide what I believe the most successful outcomes for you. And financially speaking, it, when it comes to this process, that would be 
injections of premiums. You know, our friend uh, James Anethery with the uh, uh, Banking with Life Channel, he says that the premium solves the problem, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, the the problem is the problem, and the premium is the solution <laughs> to the problem. Yes. So I think that that's when we understand that it's a really good way of looking at everything. If you want to combat inflation, the best way that we know how to do it is to practice the process of becoming your own banker. Head on over to sevensteps.ca. That's sevensteps.ca. Download our report and learn exactly how you can incorporate this process in your life so you can beat the pants off inflation.